So this is uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we always need a spirit to work so we can hear the word, so let's pray. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us this morning, that we would hear your word, that we would receive it, so that we would know you more, so that we would be transformed into the likeness of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the final episode of season three of The Office, Michael Scott along with a few others, goes to New York to interview for a job at the corporate offices of Dunder Mifflin. Uh, Michael Scott, as probably most of you know, is the regional manager in Scranton, Pennsylvania. But Michael, of course, assumes he is going to get the job and also somehow assumes he just has the right to appoint the next regional manager and assigns that task to Dwight Schrute who in the course of less than one full workday shows you exactly what kind of leader he would be. Uh, His first move is to, uh, of course, appoint Andy, uh, his second in command, who is certainly not qualified to lead anything. And uh, and then he institutes a system of shroot bucks, which is supposed to be this incentive-based reward but they are so worthless that it would take forever even to just earn enough shroot bucks to get even an extra five minutes of break that they are essentially an insult to everybody that works there. Uh, He implements a lecture series on paper, which you get a little bit of in the episode, which begins by talking about the soil that the trees grow in in Pennsylvania. Sounds tedious, to say the least, right? And then, at, and then, of course, one of the last things you see him doing is he and Andy are painting the regional manager's office black. <laughs> Dwight's comment is, it's so intimidating. Anyone who comes in here is going to have to take me seriously. 
Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. <laughs> um, Dwight loves the idea of having power and loves what he could possibly do with it, even if that's just the power of being um, the would-be regional manager of a mid-sized paper company in the middle of Pennsylvania. Um, Power is a funny thing. It goes to our heads, doesn't it? Uh, some, some of you have been in significant positions of power. Uh, even if you haven't, you have some power in your life over other people. Um, and what we have in this story is a showdown over power. It is the storyline of the kingdom of God meeting the kingdoms of this world. And we learn what power that is of this world looks like. We also learn about power that is wielded in the name of God, but is still of this world, and what it looks like. And finally, we really learn what power, the power of God is. So think about the power that is of this world. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Jesus shows up. Messiah that Israel's been waiting for, their very hope, shows up. He was supposed to deliver them and is handed over to the Roman authority. So you have the power of Rome, one of the greatest empires ever in the world, face to face with the Messiah. Uh, we've talked about the history a little bit along the way of Rome and, and Israel. Rome, we've, we've mentioned this, usually likes to rule by puppet kings that are locals. And they had installed a guy named Herod the Great uh, when they first took power. Herod the Great was the king when Jesus was born, but died shortly after that. And then the, and then the whole region of modern-day Israel and Palestine and Syria and Lebanon, that whole area that Herod the Great had ruled over, was divided up among his children. Uh, now, up in the north where Jesus grew up, where he did most of his ministry, there was still one of Herod's sons in charge as a king. But in the south, the region of Judea, that Jeru in Jerusalem the, being the capital there, uh, the son that had taken over there could not control the region. And eventually, Rome did what it didn't like to usually do and took direct control. And so uh, Pontius Pilate is one of a series of local governors known as, for minor reasons, they were known as a procurator. But, uh, but Pontius Pilate took over there from A.D. 26 to 36 for about 10 years. In Pilate's time as the procurator of, in Judea, there were no fewer than seven uprisings. And Pilate hated the Jews. Uh, this is, again, most of this is known from other sources, but Pilate, Pilate despised them. He had taken the job, of course, because it's a challenging job. And if he goes in and does a good job doing it, his political career continues to advance. So he was there to advance his political career, but Israel would not be easily cowed. They would not easily respond, and so he had, 
He had done a whole host of things. I'm not going to rehearse all of what he had done. Uh, but he hated them. He had responded ruthlessly to, to the Jewish people. In fact, so ruthlessly that, they, that the leaders of the Jews complained to uh, Emperor Tiberius. And then Pilate got wrapped on the knuckles a couple of times for being overly harsh. Which is not exactly what the Romans usually did. So Pilate hated them. And this is important to understand for the backdrop of this story. Because Pilate is not a guy who just wants to do the right thing and finds himself caught up by the wishes of the crowd. In fact, you can hear it, Pilate doesn't want to do what, especially what the, what the Jewish leaders want him to do. He is looking for Jesus to give him anything. You hear it in verse 4 and 5. He's like, come on, give me something. Right? We know that these were false charges, all sorts of claims being made about Jesus that, that was covered previously in chapter 14. But Jesus won't give him anything other than to acknowledge the one thing that he is the king of the Jews. Pilate can see that this is made up, at least a lot of the charges. He can see that Jesus is not a threat. But he's looking for Jesus to give him any reason to throw it back in the face of the leaders. He doesn't want to hear it. He embodies Roman might and pride. He's frustrated with these people that will not, that will not just submit to it. And so he's looking for a reason to get back at them. Now, here's the thing. He cannot get around the charge that Jesus is the king of the Jews. It's, it's weird. He must know, he must have heard about Jesus, right? You remember the triumphal entry five days before this, where people were singing about their would-be king that was entering. He must have gotten word about something like this going on. It wasn't unusual at the time that there were rumors of new messiahs and all these sorts of things. He must have known about it, but Jesus never showed a hint of being interested in violence and being interested in military action. So again, Pilate, he's not a fool. He sees that Jesus doesn't really pose a threat. But by refusing to deny that he is the king of the Jews... He's in a pickle. Because again, he's trying to advance his career. He's trying to look good. This is, a, this is a region where there's a lot of unrest, where Rome's power is constantly being challenged, even if those challenges are not that impressive, are not actually that existential a threat. But it's constantly, there's constant murmurs, there's constant conflict. So he, when there is a would-be king has to deal with it. In fact, uh, in John's account, John gives the, probably the longest version of this uh, interaction with Jesus and Pilate and Pilate and the crowds. The crowds actually, or the Jewish authorities actually say to him, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. They've complained to Caesar before. Pilate knows that he can't ignore this charge. This brings 
us into the world of real politics, right? Of those who are ambitious, those who want to achieve something, those who want to change the world and want the power to do it. And what we see at work in Pilate, through Pilate, is the the irony of the peace of Rome. Since the very first of the Caesars, Caesar Augustus, Rome had taken pride in the Pax Romana, the peace that it had brought to the world. But there was a dark side to that peace. See, Rome prided itself in its in its uh, justice that it brought across the world. But the unspeakable symbol, and I really mean that, it was not polite to talk about it in, uh, in noble society. And they had euphemisms to talk around, talk around it. But the unspeakable and ubiquitous symbol of Rome's power throughout the empire was the cross. Because those who threatened them ended up on crosses out just outside, or sometimes prominently within every city. And it was a horrible thing to behold. See, they kept the peace, but it was peace on Rome's terms. It was peace under the thumb of their tyranny. And it's interesting that uh, about 400 years after this, a guy, uh, Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, you know, wrote a book called The City of God. And he wrote it because in the year 410, Rome had been sacked by the Visigoths. It was a cultural crisis. The Roman Empire seemed to be falling apart. Now, by this time, the Roman, em- the Roman emperors had been Christians for about 100 years. Uh, crucifixion was no longer practiced But when Augustine looked to contrast the kingdom of God with earthly power, he told the history of Rome. And he defined the earthly city over against the godly city by by what it loved. And where the godly city is defined by the love of God, the worldly city is defined by the libido dominandi, the will to power or the lust for domination. And that is what the kingdom of this world is like. This is what the Bible calls worldliness. Is the power, is the control, the will to power, the lust for domination. And look, we have big K kingdoms that we're invested in, don't we? Uh, I'm a veteran. <laughs> I love our country. I love even as barriers praying, the freedoms that we enjoy in it. But it is not God's kingdom. And even our patriotism can be a kingdom of this world. Maybe it's a vision that we have for our country. I mean, ideologies are pretty close to idolatries. Because once I assume that I've got the vision 
or my group has the vision for exactly the way the world should be, we have no more space for a world that needs to be made right by the Lord Jesus. Anything, any ambitions we have to change the world are always at least flirting with being worldliness. Trying to grab power. And we have technological ambitions, don't we? Again, that doesn't make technology bad, just like politics is not inherently bad. But to think that everyone needs to conform to our vision for what the future would be is the will to power. Of course, not all of us have ambitions to change the world. But our own smaller kingdoms, though not as ambitious, are just as jealously guarded, aren't they? Our careers, our families. Boy, family's a dicey one, isn't it? Because the biggest threat to your family is usually inside your family. It is the person that doesn't quite fit the mold. Or the person that finally wants to name what should have been talked about for a long time. Uh, we can jealously guard our friendships. See, the, the Bible defines worldliness, uh, you know, at least this is the way Ecclesiastes put it, puts it, is whenever we think about all that matters is what's under the sun, what we can see here, what we can measure, what we can count, account for. And so, all that, whatever it is, if you can get away with it, it's fine. As long as you can get away with it, it's okay. You've got to take what you can get. I've got to get my own. And we tell ourselves that this is just being realistic about the way the world is. And this is the thing. That sounds very harsh. And maybe that's not you. But you might be the type that thinks, well, you attract more flies with honey than vinegar, right? But you're still looking to catch the flies. You might think that you're going to kill them with kindness, but you're still a mercenary. See, it's not about manners. The difference isn't manners or not having manners. The difference is whether you are out for yourself to get what you can. And the problem, of course, is what is left. Why is that worth getting? And that is a haunting question of worldliness. And we're encouraged, of course, not to think about the bigger questions, about what might be beyond that. What might be the consequences of all that we give up? Or the fallout of those that we hurt? Because if you can outstrip it, if it never catches up with you, why does it matter? But that is the question. <laughs> what if it catches up with you? What, and what do we become in the process? That is the terrifying question that lies behind thinking this way. And we all think this way. And notice this. 
It is not just the Romans that think this way. There is somebody else here who claims to be acting in God's name, but is acting by the rules of the world. It's this guy Barabbas. He's mentioned in verse 7, and then comes back up in verse 11. Uh, Barabbas, now again, this has been clear, I think, throughout this series. Barabbas is at the extreme end of what is a popular movement. That by and large, the Israelites do not like having the Romans in charge. I mean, again, their own scriptures is telling them they should be expecting a Messiah to deliver them. And so there is a popular discontent with Roman rule that is pretty widespread. Now, further out on that, in that extreme, is people we call zealots, that you hear about them a few times throughout the New Testament. Way out on the edge of that are people like Barabbas who were freedom fighters, literally, you know, often living in the mountains, the hills, you know, the hills of, Jeru- of uh, Judea, who would fight the Romans as they could, and whenever there was discontent, they came back out in force. They often, to support themselves, had to rob people along the roads. Uh, so they were, the crowd, you might say, has a certain sympathy for them, but most did not actually like having them around. And so these freedom fighters, these insurgents, these insurrectionists, pick your term, uh, would from time to time start fights. These were not usually very successful, as apparently the one that Barabbas was involved in was not. Uh, But they were violent. Little wonder then that Barabbas is a candidate for crucifixion. Because crucifixion was not a punishment for a random any random crime. This is important to understand. I mean, we all know it's a capital offense, right? So obviously we're thinking it has to be something pretty serious. But really the reality is crucifixion was reserved for largely two things. Slave revolts, you know, because that threatened the structure of society as they saw it. Uh, so slaves who revolted and those who threatened or at least attempted to set themselves up as enemies of Rome. These were the people that ended up on crosses. The thieves, we'll see them next week, who end up on either side of Jesus, were probably insurrectionists involved in the same events as Barabbas. Apparently not quite as notorious, but still, we're fighting against Rome. The thing is, Barabbas thinks he's doing it for God. He is doing this in God's name. He claims to be fighting for Israel. In fact, I mean, I think he sincerely does believe he is fighting to restore Israel. The thing is, he wants to beat Rome at its own game. He thinks the way to bring about God's justice is by means, the same means that the world uses. That the way that he's going to bring about and restore God's kingdom is by being just like the kingdoms of this world. And there's something else that's peculiar about Barabbas. It's his name. 
You might know the term bar mitzvah, right? Bar means son. Uh, bar mitzvah means son of a commandment. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a, a Jewish, you know, rite of passage. So the word bar means that. And do you know the word avas? You've heard it before. The S is just a Greek ending. Abba. His name is son of the father. And what we have then is one man named the son of the father and another who has actually cried out, Abba, father. And the crowd chooses to reject the one who is the actual son of the father for the one who merely bears his name. They want to defeat Rome by any means necessary, and they reject the one who, can't, who won't meet Rome power for power. That is what the crowds have come to despise about Jesus, is that he will not meet Rome the way they think he should. And you see what's at work here. Let's be crystal clear about this. You see what's at work. Is there the crowd... And Barabbas, perhaps being the most extreme version of this, thinks that they are acting in God's name, but they can act by any means necessary. This is the ends justifying the means. That's always a dangerous logic, isn't it? That, whatever, that because I have a good goal, I can use whatever means I need to to accomplish it. Uh, there's obviously plenty of illustrations of this in history, even unfortunately in church history, maybe even especially in modern evangelicalism. To think that what we want, because it is good, should be achieved by any means necessary. And we will become party to any tactics. however contrary they are to God's law and to the fruit of the Spirit that it takes. This is dangerous. When we start to mix up, conflate my will with God's will, what I think we ought to do with the way God thinks we ought to do it. A classic illustration that I guarantee you can find on cable television this weekend is Patton. Anybody seen this movie? Some of y'all have. Uh, it, is, it, is a fa it actually is a fascinating movie. It is worth a watch. I'm not quite sure why they play it on Memorial Day because it is very much about how complicated and unheroic in, in a lot of ways General Patton was. George C. Scott plays him. Uh, it has this kind of iconic opening monologue, you know, speech that he gives to his troops, but uh, I don't know, two-thirds or so of the way through the movie, uh, General Patton has been sidelined just before the invasion of Normandy because of his abusive behavior towards troops that had been shell-shocked. We would use the word traumatized now. Uh, his abusive behavior towards them. And this is what he says as the invasion, you know, the sort of final offensive is on its way. 
against the Germans, and he is stuck in this manor house, waiting around. He says to his aide, this is what he says, I feel I am destined to achieve some great thing. What, I do not know, but this last incident, so trivial in its nature and so terrible in its effect, it can't be an accident. It has to be the work of God. Yes, sir, the last opportunity of a lifetime. An entire world at war, and I'm left out of it? No, sir, God will not permit this to happen. I am going to be allowed to fulfill my destiny. His will be done. See, this is a man who doesn't know the difference between his will and God's will. And I'm afraid that too often in church history, and I think too often even now, the church, Christians, cannot tell the difference between our will and God's. And that is a very dangerous place to be. It is the very, to think that the ends justify the means is the very logic of hypocrisy. And the moment we start to think, well, my circumstances are exceptional. We are starting to buy the lie. Now, I'm not denying that your circumstances might be hard. I know some of you are dealing with some difficult things. I'm not even saying they might not be really hard, really difficult. But when we start to think that I can lay aside God's law or lay aside the very fruit of the Spirit to accomplish what I need to accomplish, we have left the path of wisdom. You see, what we are willing to do in our hypocrisy is sacrifice our hearts for our lifestyle. Something we want out of life. And so we will give up and we will trick ourselves into thinking it's okay to give up the very heart that Jesus wants to change, the kind of thing he wants to do in our lives. You see, we buy into focusing on our circumstances and what must change and how that person ought to change or these people ought to do something differently rather than asking what is the basic and central question of any sort of ethic, which is simply, what am I called to do here? I cannot control everybody else. You see, that is the great deception of power and being in a position of power is you think that you can control everybody else But the very question is this, what am I called to do? It may not end exactly the way I want it to, but the only person I can control is me. The only actions that I have any determination over are my own. And this is the great scandal, I think, of the church in our age, is that we are so unchristlike. I'm sure we, have, we make lots of other mistakes, but it's when we live out our life in a way that is not in accordance with the fruit of the Spirit that we prove that we are about other things than the will of God. Because that is God's will. is that you would learn to live out of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I think I missed something in there. But you get the point. (laughs) 
So what does power look like that is from God? Well, that is, of course, Jesus. As we already noted, he doesn't play the game. He made no further answer, verse 5 says. He was silent. He acknowledges that he is the king of the Jews, but he is reticent to play by the rules of this game. He doesn't. Even in the longer version of this interaction that we get in the Gospel of John, he doesn't really tell Pilate much more. He says, well, my kingdom is not of this world. (laughs) Then he also tells Pilate, by the way, you wouldn't have any power if it wasn't given to you by God. Which probably didn't go over well with Pilate. But the, uh, Jesus does not play by these rules. And in fact, because he doesn't play by these rules, he ends up on the cross. To give you another bit of history, the very first Roman uh, official that we, have, that, that we have any information about him knowing of Christians is a guy from A.D. 112 named Pliny the Younger. Uh, he, is a, he was a governor then in what is modern-day Turkey. And he finds out about this little group. He doesn't know what to call them. And he does some inquiry into it. He casually mentions torturing some servant girls to get information about it. And he reports back to the emperor that it is a perverse and extravagant superstition. And the reason the Romans thought it was perverse was because they worshipped a man who had been crucified. And we know this from plenty of other sources as well in the ancient world, that this, this was considered horrific. An offense. You would worship this man who had been crucified. Well, as one New Testament author puts it, crucifixion was a powerful symbol throughout the Roman world, and it was not just meant to be a means of liquidating undesirables. It did so with maximum degradation and humiliation. It insisted coldly and brutally on the absolute sovereignty of Rome and of Caesar. And if you want to know why Christians were thought of as a threat, it was because they worshipped somebody who had defied that power. See, the way that Jesus exercises power, the way real power works, is not in in taking others' lives, or even defending his own, but in giving his life up. You see, the the cross, the work of Jesus, shows us a very different way of thinking about power. That real power in this world works the opposite of the way we think it does. I'm not saying that that would be the best way to win friends and influence people. But I am saying that it is, a way, it is buying into the way the world is because the Creator has made it that way and because He will restore it. This is the power of grace. It is little wonder then that the message of the cross is called foolishness by Paul. He says, look, the rest of the world thinks the wisdom of the cross 
is foolishness. This is 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. They think it's foolishness. Because why would you worship someone like that? He was a failure. And indeed, if you're thinking, well, what is the route to get all the things that I want in life? This might seem like a bad idea. But of course, the moment that someone gives you what you did not deserve, you will know the power of grace. And the way that God's kingdom works is through the wisdom of the cross. Think about, think about how James puts it in James 3. This is so helpful to see. He never mentions the cross, but it's absolutely there. Listen to this. He says, this is James 3, starting verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. See, when he mentions the truth, he means the truth of the cross, the way that the world really works, according to its creator, according to the one who is redeeming it. And he goes on, but wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You can see that the logic of the cross is just under the surface. That is wisdom. You see, this is the character of God's kingdom. This is the way Jesus act, acted, and this is the way that Jesus is changing us to become as those who give of themselves. That is what grace is. Self-giving love. Not merely that we get something that we maybe didn't have to receive, but in fact, we get what we actively did not deserve, the opposite of what we deserved. That is grace. That is the self-giving love of God. And if you want to live by grace, it means two things. It means first that you have to receive it. And that has to be the first thing. Recognizing that we live most of our lives by the delusions of this world. And starting to be honest about who we are means that our only hope is in Jesus who has given his life as a ransom for us. But the way that that works out, and this is the second thing, is by giving grace to others. You have to receive it in order to be able to give it. But we are called to give it. In fact, it is a very mark of someone who has actually received God's grace is that they are gracious with others. Seeing in others, not those who are quantitatively, qualitatively different than we are, but those who are sinners just like us, 
Their issues may be different than mine. But there is no other way than the way of grace, than the way of the cross. That no other change is actually effective and long-lasting than the change that comes by God's grace. And so this is a powerful question for us as Christians, especially in the Western world, where we're so used to the idea of Christianity just sort of fitting in neatly with the way the world works around us. As we enter, become a more post-Christian society, how are we called to respond? And again, that's in a kind of macro scale, but it's also in the individual relationships in your life, your family, your friends, those you work with. How are we called to respond? I mean, worldliness would give us a template. As you fight fire with fire. And that would be the way from below that is unspiritual, demonic. Or we can follow the way from above, which is giving what we have received. Does that mean, not, does that mean you shouldn't speak the truth? No. Does that mean that you should... Be cynical. Harsh. No. It means rather that what we hold out is grace even for the worst of sinners. That's who we are. And that's what we hold out to anyone who does not know Jesus. And that, of course, is what we are called to learn day in and day out. It's to live by the wisdom that is from above, to live by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we are caught up in a lot of foolish pursuits. We often live our lives more according to the rules of the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of Jesus. I pray that we would be first those who receive grace, who receive the King and everything that He has done for us. And I pray that in turn we would be those that give grace to others. Not that we are letting things go. but rather are defined by our King and know that the only real and lasting change is what is received by grace. Teach us this kind of wisdom, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.